Good morning, Cedarville. I am so happy to be with you this morning, and we don't have a lot of time, so we're going to get right into it. Let me show you a picture of my family, first of all, so you know what I enjoy the most. This is my family, seven kids, 14 grandbabies. My love life, Pam and I have been married for 38 years, and uh, we have 11 grandsons, and I'm praying that all of them will be goers. This is a picture, my favorite picture. That's my wife in the pink, in case you lost her. She's a pretty young-looking grandma. So my favorite nickname or name is Papa. When my grandkids call me Papa, my, my heart just melts. And when they say, Papa, can I sit in your lap? I love it. I say, yes, you can. When they say, Papa, are you gonna have a baby? I think, uh, I need to lose some weight. <laughs> it actually happened twice this Christmas, and so I'm, I'm, not, I'm not feeling great. My favorite nickname outside of the family, though, is Papa Salt. I had the pleasure of starting Salt Company after I graduated from SBU in 1987 at Iowa State University. I never thought there'd be two salt companies. In 1994, we started a church that loved college students. I never thought there'd be two churches like Cornerstone Church of Ames. But by the providence of God, I mean, looking at me, you don't, well, probably when you look at me, you think, no, that's an athlete right there. No, absolutely not. My daughter happened to be the best point guard in the state of Iowa for literally three years, and so she got a scholarship to play at the University of Iowa. And if you're an Iowa State Cyclone, just let me tell you, we don't like Iowa, right? It's like, OH, and those same people go with me now, go blue! No, you're not going to do that, right? We hated them, and we believed in the sovereignty of God. We thought if they go to hell, that's all right. That's on God, right? But when my daughter received a scholarship to play basketball there, and we found out there wasn't a church there that loved college students the way that the church she grew up in, we decided to plant our first church in 2010. Then in 2016, I resigned by the influence of actually the push, I would say, of Kevin Ezell, the president of North American Mission Board, and he said, hey, could you do this in other places? And so in 2016, we started trying to plant churches all over the country with the goal of planting 400 churches in the major university centers in North America. And as of today, we have 30 churches and 31 salt companies in 15 states, and this year, we're gonna plant two more, so we're gonna go to 17 states, and then we have plans for six in 2026, or 2025, and so we're super excited. We just finished our conference. Kyle has already blown out his voice. So just so you know, he's one of our worship leaders. We had 4,665 students from all across the country at our Psalms conference with almost... Uh, 5,500 total in attendance, and we all blew our brains out worshiping the Lord. We had hundreds and hundreds of students who gave their life to Christ at our conference, and we're so grateful for that. I'm going to assume, since you guys signed the form, that you already know Jesus. I'm going to assume, since you're already here at this Christian college, that you want to follow Jesus, and I'm going to assume that since you're at the GO conference and you chose to be here, or maybe someone forced you to be here, that my influence on you will help you go to the ends of the earth. We have 1,475 student leaders in Salt Company, and we require them, almost require them, I should say, to spend at least one summer overseas. Expend at least one summer overseas, and wouldn't it be great if all of your students, Dr. White, spent at least one summer overseas, and you have lots of opportunities to do that. 
Why do we do that? It's not because the world needs Jesus more than our country needs Jesus. In fact, there's only two continents on the face of the earth where Christianity is dying and declining and you're growing up in one of them. The other one is Europe. Christianity is exploding all over the world. And maybe you would go just to see what fire looks like in the church. But maybe you would go to engage someone who's never even heard the name of Jesus because there's still billions of people on earth who have never heard the name of Jesus Christ, who've never been exposed to the gospel. And maybe God would use you. Use you. Wouldn't that be cool? But the reason we send students at least for a summer is so that they would get a heart for the globe. So that they would bust out of their little bubble and understand that God is the God of the world and he sees every single person in the world and he wants to rescue every single person in the world. And you being a child of God need to see what God sees, need to know what God knows and to go where God wants you to go. So I hope you're a goer for the rest of your life. But this morning we're gonna talk about your generation. I'm 60, that's how you, in case you're wondering. Do you think I was older? Yeah, it's okay. And I'm not pregnant. <laughs> and I want to tell you what most people think about your generation. Most people in my generation, and every generation that's gone before you, thinks about your generation that you're in need of desperate change. I want to let you know this morning that I'm not one of those. When I look at you, I don't see a generation, Gen Z, as in need of desperate change. I see a room full of world changers. From the greatest generation to the silent generation to the boomers to the busters, I'm a boomer, by the way, to the Gen X, the millennials, the Gen Z, all of them tend to look down on the generation behind them and say, wow, in the good old days. Well, let me tell you something about the good old days of the church in my day. Since the 60s, the church in our country has been dying and declining more rapidly than any other thing in our country. Today, 85% of the churches that name the name of Jesus and preach the Holy Scriptures are dying and declining. We see less Christians in our country now than we've ever seen in the history of our country. We need a fresh movement of God, don't you agree? And I believe that that fresh movement of God is gonna be on your backs, it's in your generation. And I wanna say to the Gen Zers that are here, from a baby boomer, someone in 60, Papa, and my favorite nickname in Salt Company is Papa Salt. I'm gonna say to you, we're sorry that we've delivered to you an anemic, hurting, sick church. We're asking you, and I'm praying that God would raise you up to bring revival like we have never seen in this country. That is why the Salt Company exists. That's why we're crazy about reaching college students. There are 20 million university students in our country, and they almost qualify as a UUPG. You know what that is? An unengaged, unreached people group. Less than 3% attend anything Christian. And yet, college students still remain the most reachable, trainable, sendable people group on earth. I think you're the hope of the church in the future. Not only do I believe that, not only do Salt Network churches believe that, I believe Jesus does. The world might see you as in need of change, but I believe Jesus sees you also as world changers. I'm confident when you come to this conference, 
Maybe every year, Dr. White. Matthew 28, 19, and 20, can we quote it together? No, we don't have time. What about Acts 1, 8? Can we quote it together? No, we don't have time. But you know those verses, and you should hear them over and over again, and you should memorize those verses. But I want to ask the question this morning, not what did Jesus say, but to whom did he say it? Not what did Jesus say, but to whom did he say it? When he looked at the disciples, and he called them to literally be world changers, when he ascended to heaven and said, I will empower you with the Holy Spirit, and when he fills you up, go and change the world, make disciples literally to the ends of the earth. Who was he saying that to? And here's what I believe. Jesus told, chose 12 men, mostly, mostly teenagers, to become his disciples. And after three years of training and by the power of the Holy Spirit, entrusted them with the fate of the church and the gospel to the ends of the earth. So look in your Bible at Matthew chapter 17. And you say, Papa Saul, I know, I know where you're going. You're talking about the transfiguration. Love that passage. Nope. Oh, Pop Saul, you're going to talk about when Jesus cast out the demon that the disciples couldn't get. Nope. Oh, you're going to talk about the times that Jesus predicted to his disciples that he's going to suffer and die and they didn't get it. Nope. I'm going to hopefully expound for you the most untaught passage in all of the New Testament, which I think holds the key to something I want to talk about this morning. Look at verse 24 of Matthew 17. It says, when the disciples, all the disciples came to Capernaum, those who collected the temple tax approached Peter and said, hey, does your teacher pay the temple tax? Yes, Peter said. I think he didn't know. And when Peter went into the house, Jesus spoke to Peter first. What do you think, Simon? From whom do the earthly kings collect tariffs and taxes? From their sons or from strangers? From strangers, he said, hoping to get it right. Then the sons are free, Jesus told him. But so, we won't offend them. Go to the sea, cast in a fish hook, and take the first fish that you catch, and when you open its mouth, you'll find a coin. Take it and give it to them for me and for you. Now, why is that in your Bible? Have you heard a lot of sermons on that? Show of hands. Lots of sermons on this text. No. Is it to show that God has supernatural power and uh, knows where all the money is in fish. I'm a fisherman, and every time I open a fish's mouth, I've never found a coin. And have you noticed Peter, who was a fisherman, never caught any fish unless Jesus commanded him to go fishing. And now he's gonna throw one hook in the ocean, he's gonna catch one fish, he's gonna open his mouth, there's gonna be a coin, and there's enough money in the fish's mouth to pay for two people. All the disciples were there, but enough to pay for two. Look at it in the text, it says, for me and for you. And here's the clue. Are you familiar with Exodus chapter 30, verse 14 and 15? It tells us about the temple tax. Here's what it says. Jewish law states that every male over the age of 20 was to pay a half a shekel as a census offering when they visited the temple. And all the disciples are there. And Jesus had Peter catch enough money. And we know he could have got more money. We know he could have got more fish. With one hook, he could have caught a ton of fish with a ton of money. One coin. Enough to pay for two not 13. Because Exodus 30 tells us that you have to be over 20 to pay. And is it possible? Is it possible that Jesus saw your age group as the best group to reach, to train, and to send? I think so. Oh, we know from ancient authoritative rabbinic 
commentaries in the Mishnah that here's how it was. The educational practices were very strict for Jews. At five years old, you begin scripture study. At 10, there was the oral tradition. At 13, Torah, the first five books of the Bible, responsibilities of the father. And every single Jew did this. At 15, at 15, if chosen by a teacher or a rabbi, you could begin formal study of the Talmud, their equivalent of college. Or, or if you weren't rich enough or smart enough to be chosen by a rabbi, what did you do? You began to practice your trade with your father, the family business. At 18, you were married. And at 20, you began to pursue your own business or trade. And then at 30, guess what you could become? A rabbi. You ever wonder why Jesus didn't start his earthly ministry until he was 30? Because it was the tradition and the law. And we see also in the scriptures that only Peter was married and the law said you could get married at 18 and I guarantee you, uh, these men wanted to be married and it was arranged marriages. We see that Peter's mother-in-law was healed by Jesus in Matthew 8 and Mark 1 and Luke 14 and you can't have a mother-in-law if you're not married, right? And some jokers like to say, I wonder if Peter wanted her healed. Of course he did. Why would you laugh at that? <laughs> have you ever memorized John 13, 33? You know what Jesus called his disciples? In fact, it was his number one term for referring to his disciples. He called them little children. That would be insulting if you were just, hey, hey, you guys go out with a bunch of buddies. You know, if all the disciples were Jesus' peers, guys with beards and long hair, and they're in their 30s with Jesus, you think you would call them kiddos? Little what? This is a term usually used for small children. And he said in John 13, 33 and other places, little children, I am with you for a little while longer. You will look at me just as I told the Jews. So now I tell you where I am, you cannot go. I give you a new commandment, love one another just as I've loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all men know what you were my disciples. And the little children, what did the boys do? They freaked out as if their parent was leaving. You don't have enough clues yet? What about the behavior of the disciples? Doesn't teenagers, doesn't that fit better with their zealous nature and their foolishness? Doesn't it make more sense? You know what their number one argument was in the scriptures, Luke 18, 1? What was it? Who is the greatest? Guys, they are with the goat. And they are arguing about which one of them is the greatest. You know, when I was in high school, you know what I thought? I'm gonna play pro. Because I was, uh, I thought, great, high school athlete. Then I went to college and I thought, I better learn to do something else because I'm not a very good athlete. Every high school athlete, you know what they think? They're gonna play pro. And they wonder why they didn't get a scholarship to Ohio State or Michigan or somewhere else. They wonder why their only offers were 
something else. And here these guys are with Jesus, their number one argument is who's the greatest. In fact, they get their mom involved. Isn't this teenage stuff, guys? If you have to call your mom when you're 30 to argue with Jesus if you're the greatest, what kind of slouch are you? Even in our culture and much less theirs. Guys, we know nine of the disciples' fathers by name, a reference usually reserved for young men still living under the household of their fathers, and we know two of their moms. Matthew could have been the exception, but it's possible that he was actually studying under his father, Alphaeus, and maybe Alphaeus was a tax collector and Matthew was his apprentice. We don't know, but here's my point. Here's my point. Don't miss the point. Jesus chose 12 men, most likely teenagers, trained them for three years, and called them to be world changers. When God became a man and came to earth, when he began his earthly ministry, when he began to make disciples, who was he looking for? Cedarville. He was looking for you. Common, ordinary men and women who are the most reachable, trainable, and sendable people on earth. You are the goers, and Jesus was looking for you, and God himself, when he came to earth, wasn't looking for a bunch of 30-year-olds. He wasn't looking for a bunch of highly educated men and women. He was looking for students, men and women who were eager to learn of God, men and women who were being trained by God at his feet, and men and women who would take the gospel literally to the ends of the world. It was very common in those days for rabbis to have disciples, it was very uncommon for him to call them apostles. And look what Jesus does in Luke chapter six. It says, during those days, he went on the mountain to pray and he spent the night in prayer. And when daylight came, he summoned his disciples and he chose 12 of them whom he named apostles, which means to be sent. Literally, in their name, the day he chose them, he said, now I'm gonna train you, but let me tell you what, if you're trained, you will go. Period. What about the Apostle Paul? What was his strategy? It says he was a young man when he was watching Stephen being stoned. We don't have time to get into that. And we know that he chose Timothy and Titus to be his sons in the faith, likely teenagers when we begin to join him. And here's what I believe that from the first disciples until today, every major movement of God has taken place on the backs of two things. Young people and believing prayer. I'm gonna say that again. From the very first group of disciples until today, major movements of God have taken place on the backs of two things. Young people, you, who are willing to believe God in prayer and cry out to him, for revival, for renewal, for awakening, God could spur up in this place something that is historic, a movement of God. You know how you define a movement? Something that cannot be controlled. You know what you cannot control? The move of the Holy Spirit. It's like wind, it's like fire. And when the Holy Spirit comes and blows, Jesus' kingdom comes. You ever heard of this thing, the Reformation? 
Oh yeah, Martin Luther was just 32 when he nailed this thesis there and John Calvin was only 25. World changers. In the 1700s, they established in this country the institution of higher education. Some of the first ones established, Yale, Harvard, Princeton. Have you heard of those? Seminaries, all of them to train pastors for the colonies in the new nation, United States of America. You ever heard of the Great Awakening? George Whitfield is 21. Jonathan Edwards, his first pastor he took when he was 19. How many of you are 19 to 21? 19, 20, 21. These great men of the faith, your peers. You ever heard of the great revival of the 1800s? You ever heard of this giant, D.L. Moody? He was 26 when he started his church in Chicago after doing years of ministry. And what about one of his converts, C.T. Studd? Now, if I could pick a name as a pastor, I think C.T. stood for Charles and T. stood for whatever, but you know, the last name. Pastor Stud. <laughs> hey, Pastor Stud, Papa Stud. He was a professional athlete. Did you know that? Cricket was his sport, which was a big deal down back in the day. I mean, come on now. Come on. Back in the 1800s, cricket was the bomb. And in fact, he was from wealth. And he abandoned his professional career to go to China to join Hudson Taylor. And he later started mission work in India and also in Africa. And by the way, he was an affluent person. At 26 years old, he inherited the equivalent of $5 million. And you know what Pastor Studd did? He gave it all away to the work of the gospel. Why? Because he didn't just want to be a rich athlete in this world who piled up treasures in this world only. He wanted to be a man who lived his life for the kingdom of God. And still, hundreds of years later, we're talking about Pastor Stud, the rich jock who saw nothing in athletic success, who saw nothing in material possessions and saw everything in the kingdom of God and gave his life for that. Some of the universities you're familiar with, and these are just a handful that we work with, 1820, University of Indiana was established as a seminary. Go Hoosiers. Most liberal university in that state. 1831, Syracuse University was established by the Methodists to train missionaries to send to the ends of the earth. Their whole university was established as a go conference. And now Salt Company can't even be a student organization on that campus and they're working their tails off to keep us off their campus. Established to send missionaries and now a Christian organization can't even be an organization there. 1853, you familiar with the University of Florida? Also established as a seminary. A lot of great pastors coming out of there now, right? What about the 1900s? 
Gospel preaching churches were on every major campus in North America. And literally, I mean on every major campus in North America. Just at Salt Company in Ames alone, we have Collegiate Presbyterian, Collegiate United Methodist, St. John's Episcopal, the First Baptist Church, Memorial Lutheran. Literally all on campus None of which are reaching students, none of which are preaching the gospel, all of which are preaching something other than the gospel and denying the word of God. There was a day at Iowa State University when the majority of their students was in Bible study. By the mid-1900s, the church was losing ground. Gave rise to the parachurch movement. Are you familiar with these guys? Dawson Trotman, 1933, the Navigators. 1947, InterVarsity Fellowship. Under the leadership of Stacy Woods, he was only 24. Dawson Trotman's 27. 1951, Bill Bright, who was only 30, he started Camps Crusade for Christ. Crew. All of these organizations have become world-changing organizations, but what's happening to them now? They're all, like the church, declining and dying, and there are more crews and nabs and universities that have shut down on campuses last year than were started. It's time for a change. Both Bill Bright and Billy Graham just, per se, were disciples of a gospel-preaching Loving, leading woman, Henrietta Mears. You should read her story. What a powerful thing. Guys, it's time for a new day. It's time for you to step up. The church and the gospel need to be the things you're more excited about in your life than any other thing in your life. I'm telling you, college students are still the most reachable, trainable, and sendable. We're at all major universities, all secular universities. We don't have Christian schools that we work with, although we're planning to work with you. And when we want you to be raised up as leaders in our churches and goers to the ends of the earth, guys, You have a heritage that God is building in your life and you have a responsibility to live outside of the bubble of your life. Get your training here, but then go literally to the ends of the earth. Be willing to get a little bit dirty, a little bit messy. Be willing to know a whole bunch of people who don't know your Jesus. Because if you don't make a change, we're gonna lose the battle in your lifetime. The church will die on your back. Die in this country. I want you to know how Jesus sees you, world changers. I never thought there'd be two salt companies and now I'm blown away that there are 31. And I wanna tell you the generation of student leaders, the 1,475 of them, the 185 staff, they believe that God wants to make a difference through this generation to the ends of the earth. One of our churches is called the Commons and I'll end with this. It's from Acts 4.13. Here's what it says. When they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated, untrained men, they were amazed and recognized what? That they had been with Jesus. And I love the word there. When they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained, it's a Greek word, and here's your Greek for the day, and you ask your Greek teacher if this is right or wrong, and if it's wrong, don't tell me, because it makes a great story. The Greek word is idios. 
if I called you an idios, you would know exactly what I was calling you, right? It's a transliteration. We get our English word, help me now. <laughs> That's not a compliment. But at those uneducated, untrained men turned the world upside down. And that's been the pattern of God. Guys, men and women, young men and women across the world are hearing the call of God and they're gonna be world changers. I just wanna know, Cedarville, are you gonna join them? Are you gonna be a part of that generation that says yes to God? What does it profit you if you gain the whole world? What does it mean if you're rich in this earth and you have nothing for the kingdom? Leverage your life for the kingdom of God. Let's go. What do you say? Let's go. Jesus, thank you for being with us. Thank you for filling us with your spirit. And we know around the world that you're calling men and women like us or actually like these guys and even old birds like me to keep loving them and leveraging them and supporting them and encouraging them to go to the ends of the earth, to the glory of King Jesus. What do we have to offer? Nothing but our lives. And what is our life worth? We source so much that you died. You suffered, you bled, you died so that we could have eternal life. Empower us by your spirit to go in your name next door to the ends of the earth. As followers of you, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.